Well, my name is Sam, and I have the privilege of uh, talking about Jesus a lot here. We're in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, so uh, if you turn to your Bibles there, we, uh, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Mark, Luke, and John, those are the Gospels. It's like NBC, CBS, CNN, it's like all the same story from different views. Um, then you have uh, Acts, the book of Acts, which is the story of the church. Uh, and then Romans, which is a great book of theology. And actually, I'm going to start there, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then 1 Corinthians. So we're going through that in chapter 10, the second half. This is the last kind of um, sermon in our little way we organize into a small theme about Christian liberty and Christian freedom. And So a little bit of background so we understand. Uh, Acts 18 is the record of where the church of Corinth was planted. Uh, so the book of Acts is all about... Paul um, planting churches and, and the gospel going forth into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the earth. So Acts 18 is where he's in Corinth, and it gives the story of basically the planting of the church that this letter is written to. And when he began to preach in Corinth, uh, so that just by way of reminder, because I've read it before, he encountered tremendous opposition, which is not very different than every other place that Paul uh, went to. Uh, in this place, they are very much about speaking, oratory, and all those kind of things. And so he was uh, publicly opposed and criticized and reviled out loud for everyone to hear by Jews and by Gentiles and by everyone. And his typical practice, was, it, as it was in Corinth as well, he would always begin his mission by going into the synagogue. And the synagogue was primarily the Jewish epicenter of worship, but it was also kind of like a community center in many uh, of the areas, and so it would be used for all kinds of things. People would be coming through and, and participating in all kinds of things, and so he would go in there, and specifically he'd begin by reasoning from the scriptures with the Jews and anyone else that he would do. So he did that, and then he got, did that until he got kicked out. And when he got kicked out, he continued to preach next door in a house right next to the synagogue, and all kinds of people came to be believers, including uh, the leader of the synagogue at the time. Now, Paul, um, as he saw Corinthians, Gentiles, and Jew becoming Christians, they were being baptized, and it even says in Acts 18 that many came to believe. At the same time, Paul began to have some doubts. He began to have some doubts that the gospel perhaps would even take root in a place uh, like Corinth, um, because it was very dark. And he actually, at some point... um, became fearful to speak, and reluctant to speak, and even to the point where he wanted to kind of get out of Corinth. And we know that because the only thing that stopped him, according to Acts 18, is God came in a vision and said, don't go. Don't be scared to speak. Don't leave. I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed, and he preached, and he stayed there for 18 months, and a church was birthed out of that of which we're reading about. Now, it's a good question to go, what was he so scared of? What was he so fear? Why did he start having doubts? And I think the best thing to, to identify is that he was fearful or doubtful that the hardness of the soil would receive the gospel in this place. It was a hard place. It was um, a dark place, a broken place. Now, he wrote to uh, the book of Romans. He wrote the book of Romans when he was in Corinth. Not at the time he planted the church, but later in one of his, one of his journeys. And um, 
he wrote this letter to, Ro- um, to Romans. So if you read Romans, you just have the mindset that he's writing that from this city that's very dark and very broken. So it gives you a little perspective of maybe what he was looking at as he was writing. So I want to read Romans, a section of Romans chapter 1. If you can imagine Paul penning this letter to the churches in Rome, looking out across Corinth, and this is what he wrote. Romans 1, verse 18 is where I'll read. So looking at Corinth, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what we know, what could be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, sound like the Corinthians? They became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And if you continue to read, you will see that Paul begins to describe what it meant for God to let them go into their passions and all kinds of sexual perversion and all kinds of... Describing Corinth to the T. And so what you have is this city that is very dark, that is full of idolatry. And if we were just to kind of compare our culture with the culture of Corinth at the time, we would see that maybe most boldly or most clearly in the last year or maybe two years, but even certainly longer than that, but it seems to have been emphasized most recently that the political and social movement of our culture is going towards a picture of that same world where we are equally perverse and broken. The idolatry of our world is not much different, and it is leading to the same kind of perversion, the same kind of brokenness that we see in Corinth, where they are basically destroying God's design for many things. So the question that Paul has for Corinth, or the Corinthian really has to deal with, is the same question that we have to deal with, which is how can a Christian, how can a Christian remain faithful living in a world that is overflowing with idols? How do we stay distinct in this world? How do we stand up in this world? How do we remain faithful in this world that is just teeming with things to worship? And the answers, interestingly enough, are multiple from the Christian perspective. Some go, well, should we hide away? Should we hide away from the world? Should we ignore the world? Right? Just kind of plug our ears, it'll go away, it'll go away. Or are we to engage the world? Or do we step into the world in some way? And many churches and Christians have had different answers. Some have said, yes, we need to hide away and separate. We need to just close our eyes to everything and not engage in anything. And others have gone too far into the world. See, if we don't know who we are in Christ, if we don't start there, 
We will not live in the world without becoming like it. And this is pretty much what Corinth has done. They have forgotten their identity in Christ. If you see the very first chapter of Corinthians, it's always talking about your calling, who you are, who you've been called to be, who Christ has made you to be. They have forgotten who they are in Christ, and they've begun to care too much about the world's opinion of them specifically. See, the Corinthian, or the Romans, if you will, the non-believers had a very specific view of the Christians at that time. It may not sound very different than the view of Christians of today. Let me share with you the view. The Corinthians were viewed as foolish and irrational in their belief system. What about it was foolish and irrational? Well, think about it. They believed that God, creator of the universe, took on human flesh, died on a cross for sins in our place, rose from the dead in a human body. That whole idea was thought by Romans to be foolish and by Jews completely offensive. So they thought, man, you guys got some whacked out beliefs. The Corinthians were also viewed as arrogant, as intolerant. Why was that? Well, the city of Corinth was a port city, meaning all kinds of people came through there. It was just the way it was built, diversity abounded, and specifically religious diversity. And so in the Roman world, there were a variety of religions and a variety of gods, as we've seen. And the question that they were asking were, why are the Christians not tolerant like everyone else? Why aren't they tolerating all these other belief systems and affirming that all roads lead to God just for the sake of stability in society? Why isn't that driving them? In fact, Christians who sought to preach the gospel to others, who actually sought to to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Jesus Christ, the only way to God, Jesus Christ as the key to salvation, for anyone who had the boldness to preach that as Paul did, They were criticized by all kinds of pagan intellectuals. One named Celsus sarcastically wrote this. See if it sounds familiar. About Christians, they said, he said, they alone, they say, know the right way to live. This is back in the 50s AD, right? Back in the 50s are saying, well, they think they know the right one way to live. They think that, you know, when Jesus Christ says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that that's actually true. (laughs) How arrogant. That's how they view. Lastly, they viewed the Christians as completely antisocial. And this is because they refused to participate in what they would describe as the life of the city, whether that be feasts or shows or even some of the games they may have put together. Now, of course, Public and, and civil life was inseparably bound to pagan worship. So that's kind of why they didn't participate, why Paul has said, don't go to the temple. Because even back then, we see that Christians had beliefs and even practices and behaviors that were so in conflict with society. One Roman historian, Tacitus, said this called Christians, these guys are just haters of mankind. They just hate mankind. They're haters, full of hate speech. Wow, that sounds familiar. You see, these same labels, I think, or probably worse at some point, 
are inevitable consequences in our world for any Christian or church that's going to preach biblical truth. How do you engage with a world like this? How do you engage with a culture that says your beliefs are completely irrational, but everyone else aren't? That your views are intolerant? That your behavior is antisocial? How do you live in a world that thinks you're just haters of everybody and full of hate? See, everyone wants to be liked. No one wants to be hated. And if you do, there's something a little messed up with you, right? Everyone wants to be liked. And so when the majority of a culture, when the majority views you this way, when the majority of the voices that are speaking are calling you antisocial, arrogant, irrelevant, irrational, nutjob wackos, there's a temptation. Because I want to be liked what we have seen in the church. What we've seen in individual Christians is a temptation for the church to abandon what makes them distinct. To abandon biblical truth and become like the world. This is what Corinth did. Paul says, man, you guys, like, you abandoned the cross. The very thing that defines you is like, well, we'll talk about that because it's kind of, I know, weird and stuff. So, you're no longer Christian. You get rid of the cross. But that's what they did because they wanted to be liked. They were afraid. So this letter is largely a rebuke for giving into the temptation to identify with the world to win friends. Versus identifying with Jesus to win souls. But the alternative, which many churches have followed, is not to just completely withdraw from the world. I'll just stay away from it because it's so bad. I won't do anything. I won't think about it. I'll keep my eyes closed and away from anyone who's a non-believer so I don't catch their non-belief. Paul gives us a very different perspective that's going to be uncomfortable for some of us. Where he is calling us to glorify God with the gospel, going into the world as the church. But before you attempt to go into the world as the church or as an individual, you've got to get the gospel. Do not go into the world without the gospel because then you'll start looking in the world for the things that only the gospel can provide. So you have to get the gospel. Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15, which we'll obviously study later, he calls the gospel the thing of first importance. The first thing, the primary thing. The first thing is not serving the community and blessing the poor and taking care of them. Important, but not the first thing. The first thing is not even loving each other. The first thing is identity in Jesus Christ. It's knowing the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, there's a real danger of spending time, if you will, or going into the world. Here's where he starts. I'm going to start in verse 23. He says this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul is already assumed, right? We're coming in chapter 10. He's assumed what he's already said in the first nine and a half chapters, which he has preached the gospel very boldly as a foundation of who we are. 
We have to believe the gospel deeply before we go into the world or we will risk going after the world. And so he and I want to be certain that everyone knows the gospel. That everyone believes the gospel. That a deep belief in the gospel is essential to your identity and to your living a daily life in this world. And so I am going to, to proclaim the gospel very boldly to you. And the beauty of the gospel is that God is glorified with the declaration of the gospel whether anyone believes or not. I've said it before, you could plug your ears and not hear a word I said, and God is no less glorified by the proclamation of what He has done in Christ. And so I'm going to make sure that I, if I drive away, if I drop dead in the next ten minutes, I will have preached you the gospel. So you will be without excuse. And I can wash my hands up and say, I stand before you, Jesus, unashamed. The gospel is not about what you or I or anyone must do or be in order to get saved. The gospel is, is good news, not good advice. The gospel is the news of something God has done for us, not something we are going to do for God. The gospel is the historical public announcement, the proclamation, the declaration of what Jesus Christ has done through his death and resurrection to restore man's relationship with God. It is a news report. about what has changed in this world. It is not an opinion to be disagreed with. It is something to be received. So through belief, through trusting in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection, this Jesus of Nazareth, trusting in that, frees us from having to perfectly obey God's law and saves us from a righteous, good, just God's wrath. Jesus frees us through faith to slavery to sin and gives us liberty. Jesus has freed us from our past life, from all the brokenness that we experienced, or inflicted upon others. And He's given us a new identity. Jesus has freed us from the fear of death and given us a hope after death. Jesus, though we were guilty through faith, has declared us innocent. More than that, He's declared us righteous. Though we were dirty, through faith we have been declared clean. Though we were children of wrath, hostile toward God, enemies in rebellion through faith, we are declared as adopted children of God, irrevocably and loved unconditionally. We need to get our identity squared away. Because if we don't, we will look for it in the world. 
I am not, because of the gospel, defined by what I know or don't know. I am not defined by what I do or don't do. I am not defined by the mistakes I've made or the things that I achieved or the family I'm from or the money I have. I am defined by Christ. I am in Christ and therefore I am saved. I am blessed. I am appreciated. I am reconciled. I am forgiven. I am gifted. I am new. I am victorious. I am in Christ. And if we live knowing who we are, first and foremost, if that's where we begin, if that is what is of first importance to us in our life, we are free from finding it in the world. And that's the problem. That's the temptation. When I don't get approval by the world, when I don't have achievement, I will compromise all these things so that I can because my identity starts to be found there. But if I know I'm approved, if I fail, I don't have to compromise to succeed because I know God has said, you've already succeeded. If I'm poor, I lack something. He says, you already have everything in Christ. So I don't have to pursue these things and try to find my identity or salvation in them. We live knowing who we are in Christ, so we don't find it in the world. And though we are free to do whatever we want in Christ, right? All things are lawful. We recognize that we live desiring to honor God in response to His love. So I don't just do anything I want. Because it's governed by something more powerful. Specifically, love of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul will later say the love of Christ controls. It is such a controlling thing that we, we no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. And that love produces a love for people. A love for others. And we begin to understand through the Gospel that everything we are free to do in the culture, everything we are free to do in our daily life, doesn't always build up the individual faith or the faith of the church. Doesn't always honor God in that moment. So Paul says that we are not only to not seek for our own good, right? To deny ourselves, to to deny our liberties at times. But it says that we are actually to seek the good for our neighbor. I think sometimes we stop halfway. We're very passive. Well, I'll deny myself. What Paul says here is that we're to seek the interests of others, probably because we're so naturally inclined to seek for our own. We're really good at it. Seeking the interest of others is not just passive. It's actually active. What, what does that mean? It means we don't wait for the opportunity to love. We actually create those opportunities. What does that mean? Let me get real specific. If we're going to be like Christ, if we're going to imitate Christ, I'm actually going to seek inconvenience. I'm actually going to seek discomfort. I'm actually going to seek sacrifice if that means my neighbor is blessed. Not just, oh, I guess I'll be inconvenienced for you. I guess I'll be, no, I'm going I'm to choose to be uncomfortable for you. I'm going to choose to get dirty for you. The implication is that we're actually dwelling with people, living out the gospel among them and not hiding away from them. 
not hiding away from the world, but it assumes the gospel. So Paul gets very specific, like he's established the gospel, and then he goes, let me show you what it means to live it out in a daily life, and the context for all of this is these feasts that we've been talking about for three chapters. They have temples everywhere, and they're eating all kinds of things, and they're all sacrificed to different gods, and they have struggled whether they should eat these things. So Paul's going to, again, come and say, look, here's what you do, because he's already said, don't go to the temples, because those are full-out demon worship ceremonies. But they still have to deal with the meat that's everywhere. So here's what he says. He gives clear direction for what it means to be in the world. Verse 25 to 30 says this. Speaking about this meat, demon meat, we'll call it. It's probably not ribeye, because we know that ribeye is to the glory of God. So that can never be demonic. (laughs) But any other cut, you know, it's possible. Verse 25 Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So if any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, well, this has been offered in sacrifice, some of that demon meat, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you. And for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Get ready to be uncomfortable. I love this chapter. The first thing that Paul says here is recognize this. There is nothing intrinsically evil about the things in culture. There's nothing that is in and of itself evil. Whether that is food, whether that's drink, whether that's money, or even sexuality. All the things that we see in Corinth and all the things we see in our world. The Bible says that all such things, all these things, are from God, and they were all made good. But good things have been and are made bad by sin. Whether through unhealthy desire or perversion, sin makes good things bad. Knowing the gospel, though, frees us to live in the world and, in fact, enjoy the good things that God has given us. Because of the gospel, we do not live in fear of eating something and sinning by eating it. Paul tells the Corinthians, look, fearlessly eat the food. You're not going to suddenly become a non-Christian because you ate some demon meat. Right? Enjoy the food. Enjoy the meat. Now, the reason he has to say this is because probably 99% of the meat in the marketplace is demon meat. Like, it's everywhere. It'd be hard to avoid buying it. Some meat there, wherever they're going to buy some roast, it was probably slaughtered at a pagan temple. So he says, enjoy. God has given the food, and just because someone abuses it in the world, 
does not mean it's suddenly abandoned as evil for everywhere and everyone. Now, there are many things that, that churches and, and Christians have said, oh, but this, this is evil. That thing, any good thing, can be used by sin in an abusive way. Anything can be indulged in. Family can be an idol. A good thing. Marriage can be an idol. Sexuality can be an idol. Food can be an idol. Anything can be used by sin and perverted into something it should not be. But it doesn't mean it suddenly becomes evil forever for everyone. And the gospel opens our eyes to see that. Second thing Paul says is that he encourages the Corinthians to not only fearlessly enjoy the food, but he says enjoy eating with unbelievers. Now remember back in chapter 5, I believe, he said, don't eat with any believers who are sinning. Who are practicing sin. He's like, eat with sinners! Just like Jesus did. Enjoy. He goes further and says, you know, basically, if you're going to reach out to the world, then you're going to have to be close enough to touch them. Right, churches are famous for outreach things. Why is that? Because they're so dang far away, they got to go way out to get them. You should be dwelling with them, living with them, spending time with them. That being non-believers. And he makes a great point to say, like when you sit down, he says, don't ask any questions. Basically, act like a normal person. Right? Eat normally. Enjoy normally. He tells the Corinthians, like, don't start playing 20 questions and make a big fuss unnecessarily about where this roast came from. I would eat, but is this from the temple blah, 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 that it was sacrificed at? Because if it is, I don't know, right? Where did this meat come from? Did you bless these forks? I mean, it's like, come on. He says, look, be normal. Don't ask tons of questions about what's going on here. In fact, Dare we say, engage with the world as if you really believe the gospel. Right? What a thought. Engage with the world as if you really believe the gospel. Namely this. What, do you, what the snarf do you mean by that? Well, I'll clarify. Okay? Yes, I said snarf. <laughs> Namely, engage the world believing this. That the problem in a non-believer, unbeliever, unchristian, what do you want to call them? The problem is internal, not external. The problem is the heart. And the only thing that can change the heart is the power of God. So our hope is not in, let me get all these things away from you so I can make sure. No, the hope is that God will come into their heart and transform them from the inside out, will rip out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. That's the problem. It's internal. Behavior will change with a change inside. But a change inside will never occur if you start just with behavior. Ever. And you can't live as if that's the case. You have to believe, and you have to live, and you have to engage in the world in such a way that there's something spiritual that has to occur in this individual. And I'll be close enough to them so I can proclaim the truth to them and not think that they're going to be soiled by some meat, or I will. It's the Holy Spirit who changes hearts. 
not with holding or abstaining from meat or some behavior or not. I will argue, though, that there is a huge difference between enjoying the things of God and just enjoying things. So Paul makes a point to say, as you enjoy, as you spend time, keep your eyes on the Lord. Receive things with thankfulness, which means gratitude, which means recognizing who is in charge. And he goes further basically to say, you need to protect your witness. It's not just unabandoned, do whatever you want, and hey, God will grab this person, we'll see what happens. Paul reminds the Corinthians to live in the world without fear, but always seeking the good of those around you, whether they're believers or not. In verse 28, you see that he cautions us to consider the heart of the person who takes a moment, makes a point to tell you, you know, that's idle food. And he says when someone says it, so it could be a believer, it could be a non-believer, who knows? But you have to consider both. So you have the brother in Christ the, what we describe as the weaker brother Paul used, the immature, the new believer says, hey, this is, whoa, Paul, this is, this is a, a pagan food. This is like demon food. It was, you know, sacrificed to blah, 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 blah over there, and I don't know if I can eat this because it seems like it dishonors God. So he says, protect his conscience. Protect his faith. Don't eat. Love him enough to go, I'll abstain. And don't go, hey, you know what, um... Normally I'd eat this, but since you're such a pansy in regards to faith, um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, not partake today, okay? For you. That's not love, that's shame, right? You, you recognize what's going on, and you say, hey, I, you know, I'm not going to enjoy it, don't worry about it. But you also have to protect in some way, I shouldn't say protect the non-believer, but the non-believer may say, hey, this is idol food. There might be other reasons, a couple reasons for him saying it. Some scholars said, the possibility exists that the non-believers are kind of like trying to trick the Christians and like slipping in some booga-booga food from, you know, wherever. And then like, oh, you ate idol food. Oh, so I guess it's the same, huh? No big deal. And so the other thing is you're protecting the heart of the, the brother, right? But you're also protecting and affirming the one true God. And so if a non-believer is going to take issue with it and say, well, if you're okay with this food, it must be, you know, you eat Christian food, you eat... Pagan food, whatever, I guess there's just gods everywhere. No, there's one God. I'm not going to partake of that. Because you worship it, and you shouldn't. You worship this God over here, and I'm going to affirm the one true God, the one true faith, the one path to salvation, Jesus Christ. And there'll be decisions like that, where you'll opportunity to participate in something that you know the world is getting much more out of than just enjoyment. They're worshiping. And it'll be at that moment we'll be challenged and tasked to stand up for the one faith in the same way you're challenged and tasked to stand up for the one faith of that individual believer. It's a little more difficult than just making a list of rules. But it's being discerning. So Paul, it gets to the end here in verse 31, right? Verse 31, this is the awesome part of Scripture. He kind of gives this overarching principle. He's gotten very specific, and now he's going to get very big. Go, this is what's guiding you, people. There is something governing your daily decisions in life, or should be. With the foundation of the gospel, going into the world, trying to accomplish something. Not just enjoy the world. Which there's plenty of things to enjoy. 
He gets this overarching principle that guides all decision-making. Verse 31 says this. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I love that verse. That is, I think, going to be the tattoo verse right here. It's a fantastic reminder. It is such a convicting and clear verse. Like, you, you really, you could try to misunderstand that. But you really can't. And I'll explain that. But he goes further and says something kind of weird. He says, verse 32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything. Ooh. I'll explain. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So if, if you're like the normal person, normal Christian, you have a tendency or temptation to divide your life into categories, spiritual and not spiritual. And there's all kinds of things that fit under the spiritual thing. We typically uh, take our Sunday gatherings, if, if we spend time in a community group, if I read my Bible, those kind of things, we go, you know what, those are my spiritual activities. But it's unlikely for us to throw in our job at times. That's just what I do so that I can do spiritual things. Um, our parenting, uh, spend money, all kinds of things. We kind of keep some of that stuff back out of the spiritual category. It's just a non-spiritual thing. It seems, though, Paul here is trying to blow things up a little bit. And it seems, I mean, I'm not a true biblical scholar, but it seems that Paul is trying to say, perhaps we should consider everything spiritual. I mean, there's nothing much baser than eating and drinking. I know your mind is right, well, what about, yeah, uh, you know, there's a couple other things maybe, but so that our minds don't go there, Paul says, or whatever you do, which very much includes everything, right? What about this? Do you do it? Well, yes. So there you go. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, he says, do all to the glory of God. And the implication is, which might make you a little uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable, is that we can eat and drink and work and parent and spend our money and play in a way that does not glorify God. Okay, how does that work? Seems that there's a controlling question in our decision making, which is not whether we can do it or we cannot do it, but whether our participation or doing anything is going to make much of God or less of Him. Is going to display more of God or display less of Him. Well, what does that mean? Well, what will my decision, my participation in whatever it is, preach about God? Consider yourself a preacher, preaching a sermon constantly. What will my behavior, right? It's not even just action, but it's behavior, actions, what about your attitude? Your words. What will they preach about His love? About His mercy? About His forgiveness? About His grace? About His patience? About His wisdom, right? When you're waiting on God for something, something that hasn't happened, what are you preaching in your waiting? Are you complaining and therefore denying that God is wise? Denying that God is in control? Denying that God has given you what is good as He promises? 
What are you preaching about God as you make these decisions to have even certain attitudes? As you suffer, and many have suffered, what are you preaching? Are you preaching a belief in a God who is good and a God who is in control of all things and a God who is present with you? Or are you preaching something else? Are you displaying and making much of God by your attitudes and your behaviors? Or are you making much of something else and hoping perhaps in something else? We're all preaching, and the question is, are you preaching a sermon that's true or false? The most powerful way to glorify God is very clear in Scripture. And Paul says it, imitate Christ. Okay, what's that mean? Well, Jesus sought for discomfort, stepped into inconvenience, Suffered. He didn't seek his own advantage, but that of many others. So much so, he suffered and died that others might live. And we don't just make a practice of like, I'm just going to give up every right I have all the time. Because I think that's much easier. Instead, I believe we are supposed to actively evaluate whether or not this situation calls for it, this moment calls for it and basically devote our lives to imitating Christ in the sense of devoting it to the benefit of others. In other words, we are to engage the world with intentionality, not just to enjoy it, not just to make a bunch of good, unbelieving friends. There's an interesting kind of self-righteousness that's coming up in the church a little bit, especially in the missional church, the going church. is like, well, how many non-Christian friends do you have? I'll tell you right now, if you have non-Christian friends, I sure hope you're preaching the gospel to them. I want you to be loving them and, and dwelling with them as Christ did, but you should be preaching to them as Christ did. And if you're not, my question is like, what are you doing? Anyone can have friendships. Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten what you actually believe in and what we hope in? See, Paul kind of brings it to the end here. He basically says, like, there's this glory principle, right? The statement he has afterwards can kind of be strange if you misunderstand it. But he describes his own intention not to not only avoid offending, which is what he says, I, I try not to offend people, and I also work to please everyone and everything. And like That sounds very much like someone working for the approval of men or trying not to be disapproved or rejected by them. And it is tempting to make the world happy so they will like you and they won't reject you. We all fall for that constantly. But I think Paul is actually speaking about a different kind of pleasing. In aiming to please what I'll just call the religious and the irreligious and even the gospel, gospel people, the, the church, Paul is not working and pleasing to get something for himself. That's typically why we try to make people happy or try to make them prudent. It's, it's to get something like, we lie so people will think better of us. That, that's why we lie. For a moment, we forget the gospel. We forget that we are approved by God. We are loved for who we are, and he knows it all. And so we lie because we want the approval of men. I want you to think different than I actually am. 
It's always a gospel issue. And so when he's talking about pleasing, he's not pleasing people, loving people, giving to people, doing whatever he can for people so that he will get their respect. He's not trying to to gain their approval or, or even just be liked by him. He wants to win their souls for Christ. So we're not working to please the world so that they will love us, but so that they'll love Jesus. And they'll receive salvation, not give something to us. And the temptation for us is to think that loving the world is, we need to become like the world. That's the best way to love them. No, the the best way to please the world and to love the world is to engage the world like Jesus did. In other words, Jesus didn't just want people to come and, and listen to him. He didn't just want people to come to church. He wanted people to become part of the church. He wanted people to become part of the family of God. To become adopted as sons and daughters of Christ. To become brothers and sisters of others who are sons and daughters of Christ. That's his greatest hope. And if that is not your greatest hope for any non-believer you're in a relationship with, again, what are you doing? What do you hope in? Because the most wonderful thing that could happen to that individual, whether a family member or just a friend, is that they will receive salvation and know the love of Christ and feel the love of brothers and sisters in Christ. That should guide you. That should guide your dwelling, guide your service, guide your loving, guide your engaging in the world because the most glorifying thing is to imitate Christ and Christ save people. You can't save anyone, but you can introduce them to Christ. And so we will, in conclusion, go into the world. And we are called to preach the gospel to the religious and to the irreligious and even to the church. Why? Because we forget it. Don't forget the book of Judges, chapter 2. People of Israel went downhill when a generation died and they forgot what God had done. That's where it starts. And so we preach the gospel every Sunday. And we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That we are not guilty of forgetting all that God has done for us and not fall into the temptation to go after the world and find something that we think we need. So we don't hide away from the world and we don't just enter into relationships without intentionality. We dwell and we preach the gospel to the religious who are trying their darndest to please God by being good and we say, you know what, you ain't going to make it, brother. It doesn't matter how good you are, you're never going to be good enough. You are so broken. But the gospel says, Jesus is not. And to the irreligious who are trying to avoid God by being bad, we tell them, look, your sin is not going to satisfy. You're looking for contentment in something you're not going to find in the world. It's in Christ. He's the one that gives you purpose and hope. He is the one you should be worshiping. And so we confront those who are self-righteous, the religious, and those who are self-indulgent. And we confront them with the gospel of Jesus says, be self-denying. We confront them both with the news. Right? The proclamation that you 
are more sinful and ugly and broken than you'll never ever know or admit. But you are more loved than you could possibly imagine. That's the gospel. That's what the world needs to hear. And to the Christians who think, yeah, I've heard that. Someone should tell someone else about that. I, I compel you to say the gospel confronts you and your self-preservation. I've received a salvation. Now I'm trying to like make sure my kingdom's okay. The gospel of grace is more than a gift, not less. It's more than a gift of adoption. It is a call to follow. It's a call to go. It's a call to preach. And I'll prove it by this last verse out of Romans, written from Corinth. Chapter 10 says this, How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. We've got to open our mouths, people. We've got to tell people about Jesus. And God didn't choose men. I've heard this, a pastor said, I think. He didn't choose men because he thought this is the most effective way to get the message out. He definitely could have written it on the clouds, all kinds of things. He did it because, quite frankly, it's good for us. And it changes us. And reminds us of where our joy is and where our hope is. So we are called to glorify God with the Gospel. Go into the culture as the church call people to faith. And we end our services, and really the zenith and the pinnacle of our services is the communion table. Because we want everyone to to leave remembering who you are in Christ. We don't want you leaving believing that I am only affirmed and approved and loved if I go preach. Jesus Christ, whom was baptized before He started a second of ministry, God said, I love you. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And He hadn't done a minute of ministry yet. So in Christ we are loved. And we come to the table where the bread is His body broken and His blood shed. And we come and we say, we are first and foremost sons and daughters of the King. And secondly, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we never forget that. And we preach that. And as you go out from here, that identity doesn't stop or cease. That identity continues as you engage the world. I am first and foremost a son and daughter of the King. And so if you give me disapproval world, if you hate me, call me, I don't care. I'm loved. I don't have to compromise and throw away biblical truth because you say I'm freaky. And we can know and can rejoice that we have brothers and sisters in Christ doing the same thing. I'm going to pray. And we are going to sing about the fact that Jesus Christ has buried our old life and He has raised us up Right? Second part, raise this up with new life to do something. And it begins by worshiping. You didn't come here to receive. You came here to give God worship. And that's what we're going to do. Let's pray.